Well, good morning. It's uh, great to be with you again. I was here last year and had the, uh, the privilege and honor of, uh, of speaking. Uh, you had two services then, so I'm uh, thankful that you have one service uh, this, this time. I uh, appreciate that. Um, um, already been kind of introduced already, but I am, uh, my, my brother Matt is my older uh, brother, and uh, super thankful for him, thankful for the invitation to be here. Uh, he, is, uh, he is a very, um, he's a great man, and I'm super proud of him, and uh, I look up to him in more ways than one, if you know the uh, height difference there, but, but truly, I've uh, been appreciated him uh, for many years of, of my life, as some not as many years, but the more recent years, I've appreciated him, um, and if you don't understand that, you can see last year's sermon, I shared a little bit about that. Uh, anyways, I am married, uh, my wife, Amanda, and I have four kids, um, 16, 14, 12, and 8. Uh, two of them are, are with me today, our two girls. And uh, thankful to be uh, to be with you again. But enough about me. You're, you're not here to 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 learn about me. We're we're here to to look at the scriptures. And so um, you've heard the scriptures read. Uh, would you just bow with me uh, before we get going here and ask for God's help? We'll just re- read this prayer. And you can uh, agree with it from the the Book of Common Prayer. It goes like this: Prepare our hearts, O God, to accept Your Word. Silence in us any voice but your own, that hearing we may also obey your will through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Well, our passage today, as you already heard read, is 1 Corinthians chapter 13. If you have a Bible, I invite you to turn there uh, with me. Uh, This is uh, the so-called love chapter that you may have heard it called before. It's probably the most well-known chapter in the book of 1 Corinthians. You don't have to be a churchgoer to have heard uh, 1 Corinthians uh, 13. You could have uh, heard it at a, at a wedding. Uh, you could have uh, went to your, your grandma's house and found it on a, on a coffee mug or stitched into a pillow or whatever. Like it, it's, it's pretty much everywhere. Go to Hobby Lobby. It's like uh, on a sign somewhere, I'm sure. Right? It, 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 is, it is pretty uh, ubiquitous. You might think as far as the message. But it is, it is well known and it's well known for, for a good reason. Uh, but before we go uh, further into the text or into the text, I do want to give a word of caution and then a, an invitation. And, and the word of caution uh, comes, um, well, there's a, there's a story that, that was told. Um, Aesop, you probably have heard of Aesop's fables. Uh, Aesop told this a very short fable called The Lion and the Fox. And one day a fox uh, uh, comes upon a lion and the, the fox is absolutely petrified and just runs away very, very quickly. Uh, the next time he sees the lion, he comes up to the lion and he's not quite as alarmed by the lion. He's still conservative, but, but not, not scared. The third time he comes up to the lion, he has zero fear at all. And he walks right up to the lion as though there is no danger. Aesop ends that fable with this sentence. Familiarity breeds contempt. Familiarity breeds contempt. We can assume too much. With what we're familiar with, sometimes we miss what is actually there. There could be a a danger in the comfort of what is familiar. So, So the word of caution 
is not to check out this morning because this is a passage you have heard before, a passage that you've probably heard preached before, verses that maybe some of you have even memorized uh, before uh, because you think you, you, you know this chapter and some of you probably do actually know this chapter and that's awesome. But the truth is that we're not gathered here primarily to learn something. That's not the primary reason for our gathering. The primary reason for our gathering is worship. Now, the preacher's job is, is not to come to you with, with new things to, to increase your knowledge. That's not primarily the job of the preacher. Now, the preacher is to, to lead you into worship. The preacher, in a sense, is, is only saying old things again. Ancient truths that have been long preserved, and we want to continue to preserve those. So in order to guard us from this familiarity, I invite you to pray just this simple prayer. It just goes like this. God, give me a new depth to an old truth. God, give to me a, a new depth to an old truth. Let's pray that. God, would you give to us today a new depth to an old truth? And may God help us. The church here uh, in Corinth, and Paul is writing to a church in 1 Corinthians. It's a church in a town called Corinth. And this church had a lot of issues. And you might be familiar with some of those issues. We won't detail those issues this morning, but you can read that for yourself, especially in the first few chapters of uh, the first book. It had problems, uh, but Paul saw promise in this church. He loved the church. He commended the church where he could, and he corrected the church where and, and when they needed it. Uh, this church was a bit of a, a hot mess, really, with, with several, several issues. But what we find out is that there was grace for them, too. And actually, that's what grace is for, right? Grace is for the mess. Grace is, for, grace is messy. Grace is unmerited. Grace is unmeritable. Because if we could merit it, if we could earn it, if we could deserve it, it would not be grace, Right? It would be something that is, that is then earned. So there's grace for the messy church of Corinth. And guess what? There's grace for us too. Uh, sadly, we might see more commonality with the church in Corinth than we would like to see in the church in America. Uh, whereas that's not a compliment, it is accurate. And just as there was grace for them, there is grace for us too. Now, 1 Corinthians 13 uh, comes in the midst of a, a letter, right? And this is a, a letter that has 16 chapters. And so there's a chapter before it and a chapter after it, as you would imagine. And I, and I only say that to you to say that um, there's a context to chapter 13, that Paul is writing something and he's, he's dealing with something. And in the midst of that, we get chapter 13. And most of the time when we hear chapter 13 talked about or read or maybe even preached, it is devoid of its context. It's removed from its context altogether. And you get those really uh, familiar words of verses four, five, six, seven, that love is, and so on and so forth. But there is actually a context to, to what is being said here. And context is key in order for us to understand the Bible. So in chapter 12, uh, Paul is addressing spiritual gifts. He talks all about spiritual gifts there. He's talking to the church uh, about being the body of Christ, 
And that, that being a body means that there are many members that make up one body. And those many members have gifts and ability that make the body whole. Like that's what chapter 12 is talking about. You, you can't have a functioning body if, if every member of the body is identical, right? You can't have an actual body if everyone is a thumb, right? Or if everybody's an ear or everybody's an eye, right? That doesn't, doesn't even make any sense. It wouldn't be a body, right? And so you, you actually have to have multiple members, different members. The unity of the body is not in its uniformity, but it's in its diversity, Right? That's what makes up our physical bodies. That's the illustration. That's the imagery here. And he applies that onto the body of Christ. And with these gifts, with these abilities, these members make up or complete the body of Christ in a locality. Paul brought this to the attention of the church because particular spiritual gifts were being elevated over other gifts. At a fundamental level, the church was missing the point of spiritual gifts. These gifts were meant for the body, for the church, not just for individuals. Your gifts are meant for the good of the body, not just for yourself. There was selfishness and there was pride in the church in Corinth concerning what spiritual gifts they had. What the gifts were, were more important to them than how the gifts were to be used or the way in which the gifts were to be used. And so in light of that, Paul says this, look at chapter 12, verse 31. But earnestly desire the higher gifts, and I will, and I will show you still a more excellent way, a more excellent way. What is the more excellent way? Well, you, you will know that when the Bible was originally written, there, there were no chapter divisions or verse numbers. And so chapter 12 would flow directly into chapter 13. And so again, if, if we take it out of its context, we miss this. What is Paul saying is the more excellent way? Chapter 13, love. Right? The rule of love, the way of love is the more excellent way. And he goes on to tell us about this love. And we see three characteristics of love. And the first is in the first three verses. And let's read those. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong and a clanging cymbal. If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am not. Nothing. If I give away all that I have, and if I deliver my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. The first thing we see here is that, that love is actually essential. Love is essential. Um, um, the, the most important piece in the whole spiritual gift conversation, Paul is saying, is love. The absence of love renders spiritual gifts worthless. Uh, the first is that uh, we see here this idea of speaking. Love is essential in speaking. Be be before we get there, though, let let's talk about the word love. Right? There, there are a lot of different ideas about love today. Right? We, we hear this, this popular phrase, love is love. You've heard that before. Well, well it depends, doesn't it? 
It depends on what we are defining as love. How do we arrive at a definition of love? How do I know that you and I are saying the same thing when we use the word love? In fact, in the Greek, there are four different words for love, and they mean different things. One of those words is a, is a parental love. It's a familial affection. Another is, is the kind of love between a, a husband and a wife, or, or, or a lover's love, passion, being in love, we might say. And there's the, the word for brotherly love, uh, that, that idea of a shoulder-to-shoulder friendship love. And then there's this idea of what we might, what the Greek word is, agape love. And this certainly applies to how God loves us, but it also applies to how a Christian then is to love others. It's a deep, abiding affection. It's an unconditional love. It's a self-sacrificial love. And that's actually the love that 1 Corinthians is talking about here. That's the kind of love that, that, that Paul is calling for here. This, this love is necessary, and without it, there are clear problems. And he demonstrates that in three ways. In verse one, in regard to speaking. And so tongues was, was the, the spiritual gift that, that many people were, wanted to have, that, that was uh, seemed to be or um, presumed to be a, a greater gift. They were all excited about that gift. And just, just a word on tongues. I don't know where everyone at, is at in the room on tongues. Uh, but, but let me just say this about the word tongues. The word tongues is actually, it actually means a language. It's not, just, it's not just gibberish. It's not your language to God. It's actually a language. The, the, the word here is the word glossa. It's the word that we get our word glossary. It's words, it's actual language. So sometimes we, we hear people talk about tongues and it, it, we're not understanding it biblically, let's just say it that way. But nevertheless, the church here in Corinth ha- had this desire for this gift and yet Paul says, even if you have tongues, the tongues of men in this angelic language, even if you had that, but if you don't have love, you're a noisy gong and you're a, a clanging cymbal. It means nothing. It's worthless. You're just making noise. Their interest was in the gift, not in helping other people with their gift. So not only was speaking, um, love essential in speaking, but love is essential in knowledge. In verse 2, he talks about that. All knowledge and all faith. And Paul's saying one can have the right knowledge, even this spiritual knowledge, even special faith, think, wow, like knowledge and and faith, like that sounds really, really good, really spiritual of you. But he says, but if it's without love, it's nothing. Robert Gramacchi writes, a full head with an empty heart is worth nothing. A full head with an empty heart is worth nothing. That's a good word for us today. Thirdly, love is essential in giving. That, That verse three says, if I give away all that I have, if I deliver my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. So we, we all would, would value um, people who are, uh, are a philanthropist, right? Who, who gives their, their stuff away. We would think that's very commendable. commendable. Or martyrdom, someone who's willing to even give up their life, right? We, we see all of those things as admirable, and they are to some degree. But Paul is saying, you can even do all of that, but if it's not done in love, you gain nothing. There's no value in it. Love is essential. It's essential in our speaking. It's it's essential in our knowledge, and it's essential in our giving. 
if love is essential, then we have better have a good understanding of what, not only what it is, but how it acts. Because as we said, not everything that calls itself love is love, biblically speaking. So we come to verses four through seven, and Paul here depicts the nature of love, which was in contrast to the church in Corinth, right? So again, keep it in its context. Keep in, in the mind of, of, of Paul writing to a local church who's struggling to follow Jesus, who's, who's you know, kind of falling off the path left and right, who, who isn't walking in the ways of, of Jesus. And Paul writes to them about what love actually looks like and what it means and what it does. And love, we see in verses four through seven, edifies. It, it builds up. And there's 14 effects of love listed here. Don't worry, we'll go through them very quickly. Half of them are positive, half of them are negative. Now, we don't suggest, and I don't think Paul is suggesting here, that this is somehow an exhaustive list of all that, that love uh, is or does, or a, a, you know, a full-throated uh, description, uh, but it is an accurate description. In the first, uh, first effects of love we see in verse 4, and these are in relationship to others, our love in relationship to others. Love is patience. That means it suffers long. It, 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 it has the capacity, one writer says, it is the capacity to be wronged and not retaliate. Patience. It is kind. Love is kind. That's gentleness. That's goodness. That's extending good to someone else. Love does not envy that means it's not jealous. It does not resent someone for their success. In these first three things, what we're seeing Paul do is he's saying, love is patient with people who aren't easy to be patient with. Love is kind with the people who are not easy to be kind to. And love is actually, does not envy those people's lives who are actually enviable, right? Why would he say that? Because it takes nothing to be patient with someone who's easy. It takes nothing to be kind to someone who's kind to you. It takes nothing to envy somebody whose life you don't really like. <laughs> that doesn't require anything. So Paul is saying it actually takes love to live like this. Like the only way you could be patient to be kind and to not envy is if you had this kind of love. He goes on in verses four and five, we see four more effects. And this is related to ourselves, what's going on in us, that love does not boast or it does not brag. Uh, again, the same commentator here says that this is uh, two poles of the same problem. That is envy and boasting. Envy and boasting or boasting and envy, right? Boasting is you're proud of what you have. Envy is you want what everybody else has. Right? And so he's saying this, this love is actually the answer to, to both of these uh, issues, both of these problems. Love, is, all, love is, is not arrogant, is the second thing we see here in verse four, uh, or another thing. Love is not puffed up, not puffed up with pride. It's not rude. It is uh, respectful of others. It does not insist on its own way. So in each of these four things, what, what we're seeing is that love is not selfish. Love is others-centered, not self-centered. 
right? That's, that's what Paul seems to be saying here. The rest of verse five uh, begins the, the, the next three um, effects related to sin. Love is not irritable. It means it's, easy, it's not easily provoked. It's not easily angered. Love is not resentful. Uh, love does not count up wrongdoing and refuse to forgive. John Calvin writes, love is a bridle to repress quarrels. Love is a bridle to repress quarrels. Finally, in verse six, we see, love does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Now we can see here, Paul is doing something with a, a comparison, isn't he? Love does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but what is the opposite here that Paul is making but the truth? Now, our, our society seems to have this completely backwards, doesn't it? That there is a rejoicing in the wrongdoing in not rejoicing in the truth. But that will only make sense if you know what wrongdoing means and you know what the truth means. But in a post-modern, post-Christian, post-etc., etc., etc., the idea of truth is now relative, isn't it? So in order to understand this, we, we, we would need to define or help us understand what does Paul mean when he says the truth? What does the Bible mean when it says the truth? Well, Jesus actually addresses this, and there's much more we could say, of course, but in John chapter 17, verse 17, Jesus is praying a prayer, and he prays to, to the Father, and he says, sanctify them by my truth. Your word is truth. So what is Paul meaning here? Don't rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoice in the truth. Rejoice in what God says is true. So to rejoice in the truth is to rejoice in God's word. That is the truth. To rejoice in what God forbids, to rejoice in wrongdoing, can't be love, right? That's what Paul just said. Love does not rejoice in wrongdoing. So when we have a society of people or a portion of people who, who want to celebrate sin in order not to offend someone, that can't be love. By definition, it can't be love. Because here, the actual words says that love does not do that. Now, that's not some you know, overly conservative person saying that. that. That's Paul saying, love doesn't. It doesn't rejoice in wrongdoing. To approve of actions for which men and women will be condemned is not love. To affirm what God prohibits is not love. To affirm what God prohibits is to offend God. Who are we more, who are we more concerned about offending? <laughs> to affirm what God forbids is to offend God. To endorse as good what the scriptures call sin and for which Jesus had to die is not an act of love for anyone. Why? Because love does not rejoice in wrongdoing. It does not rejoice in evil. It rejoices in the truth, even when 
some may not understand that. Even when some may disagree with your view, the biblical view of truth, even when you are called judgmental or fill in whatever word you want to use. Jesus did, in fact, tell us to love our neighbors, uh, to love our enemies. That's absolutely true. But love never rejoices in the evil. It never rejoices in wrongdoing, but always and only rejoices in the truth. That's love. Finally, in verse seven, we see the, the final four effects, and these are in relationship to our circumstance. Love bears all things. That means love puts up with, puts up with difficulty, puts up with annoyances. Love is willing to be inconvenienced. Now, love does not put up with sin, does not justify sin. Certainly, that's not what Paul is indicating here. But love bears all things. It believes all things. Love gives the benefit of the doubt. Love believes the best about someone. Love isn't naturally or uh, firstly suspicious of other other people's motives. Love hopes all things. Love anticipates spiritual good. And love endures all things. That is, love perseveres. Love perseveres. This is love, right? In this love, we see never ends. Unlike spiritual gifts, which brings us to verses 8 through 13, where we find out that love is endless, but the gifts aren't. Look at verse 8. Love never ends. As for prophecy, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. Again, Paul is contrasting the lasting power of the spiritual grace of love against the passing away, the temporal, the the, the, uh, the temporalness of spiritual gifts, such as, he lists here, prophecies, tongues, and knowledge. Again, what is, he, what is he talking about? He's talking about spiritual gifts, and he wants them to value the right things. He wants them to pursue the right things. And he's saying, love never ends. Spiritual gifts will end. Get your priorities in order. And when will they end? Verse 10 says, for when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. Now, if you're familiar with this passage, this is a pretty debated verse right here. There's a lot of different ideas on what the perfect means. Does it mean the the, the conclusion of the Bible? Does it mean uh, the maturity and the establishment of the church in the death of the apostles? Does it mean the eternal state? When will they end? The point isn't so much about that, at least not for today. The point is that they will end. That's what Paul is saying. That there will come a time when the spiritual gifts end, but love doesn't. Love never ends. Love is endless. The gifts are temporary. Verses 11 and 12, we see the gifts are, are in a sense, childish, or they're infantile. Look at verse 11. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish things. For now, we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now, in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been known fully. 
Spiritual gifts were for a time, for a season. They, they were for a purpose. Building of the church, certainly. Authenticating the, the apostles, definitely, in their message. And at some point in time, those gifts will, will be done. That The time will be closed or has been closed. Those gifts have ceased. The gifts were limited. That's Paul's point. One day we will see clearly. One day we'll understand better, and that day is yet to come. And so gifts, though limited, though good, that's all true, but love's eternal. Look at verse 13. So now, faith, hope, and love abide. These three, the greatest of these is love. When the gifts pass away, Paul says, what will remain is faith, hope, and love. And then he adds, the greatest of these is love. Well, why is it the greatest? The reason it's the greatest because, is because one day faith will become sight. One day we won't see it a, a mirror dimly anymore. One day we will know as we are known. Faith will be no more. Hope one day, hope will be finally and fully fulfilled. Right now, we have the hope, the, the sure hope of heaven, Christian. And one day, that will be fulfilled, finally and fully. And there'll be no more need for hope because the promises will be fulfilled. Those two pass away, but what? But love remains forever. Love is endless. Love is eternal. Now, as we said, from chapter 12 to chapter 13, there was no break in the original. That also means that there was no break in the original after verses, verse 13 in chapter 13, which rolls right into chapter 14, verse 1. Look at that with me. Pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. So Paul is saying there's nothing wrong with spiritual gifts. There's nothing wrong with desiring spiritual gifts. You, you've been given gifts. Use the gifts. Yes, there's nothing wrong with them. They are to be used. But like the Corinthians, many in the church today, as one writer says, are zealous for the gifts, but careless of the graces. And which means that we get more focused on what the gift is than why we have the gift in how we are to use our gifts. More interested in, in just doing our thing than being who God wants us to be. More occupied with gifts and less with our character. Gifts without love are worthless. Theologian Warren Wearsby says it this way, we must not minimize gifts, but neither should we neglect the graces of the Spirit. The only way spiritual gifts can be used creatively is when Christians are motivated by love. Love that is essential, love that edifies, love that is endless. So then we agree with Paul, pursue love. Pursue love, do that. Yes and amen, pursue love. We might want to ask ourselves, what would be different in our life if we lived motivated by this kind of love? How would, our, how would our interactions be different? How would our relationships be different? How would things between people we disagree with currently be different if we were motivated, motivated by this kind of love? Can you imagine a community 
a culture, a country that actually lived out God's love in the world? What would it look like if Christians in this country lived this way? How might that help our country today? And that all sounds great, doesn't it? It almost sounds like utopian. That's not what I'm, I'm getting at today. But the point is, wouldn't that be great? Wouldn't it be great if you could do that? But here's the reality. That's a lot harder than it sounds, isn't it? It's a lot harder than it sounds for many reasons because life is not easy. People are not easy. There are some people who are quite frankly mean. And it's not, it's not easy to love them. And some of us aren't the nicest people in the world to begin with, right? That makes this very difficult also. Culture is combative. Christianity isn't particularly popular. So you run around, try to love this way, not everyone's going to receive it that way. And yet that is what we are called to do. In fact, Paul says to the Galatians that you have been freed in order to serve one another in love. Like love is actually the purpose of your life. That's what we're meant to do, but we still ask, how do we do that? How could we do that? How could you do that? How could you do it this week? I'm gonna point you to a passage from 1 John chapter four. Let me read it for you. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God, and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God, whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Here in verse 19, we see this little verse that is so powerful and so helpful for us to understand. Verse 19, we love because he first loved us. We might listen to 1 Corinthians 13 and think, yeah, right. Like, I, I can't live like that. Like, how could I ever live like that? The only way you can live like that is if you've been loved like that. And that actually is what 1 Corinthians 13, verses 4 through 6 is describing. It's describing how Jesus loves us. It's describing love incarnate. It's describing love in the flesh. He is our example. Right? Because we have been loved, now we are to love. Right? That is the message of the Bible. God loves you, and now you go and love other people. But you can only do that if you have received God's love. If you've come to God recognizing who he is and what he has done, that's the only way your heart could ever be changed to live this kind of way. That's the invitation of the Bible, is to come to God and be new, be renewed, that God gives you a new heart. He gives you a new mind. He gives you the capacity by which you can love, which, which leads to the second thing that we want to say as far as how we can do this, is that when you become a Christian, God gives to you his spirit. The spirit of God lives with you. Does anybody, no one else thinks that's crazy? The Holy Spirit lives with you. 
And so you think, like, I'm not that nice. You're right. You're not that nice. But here's the great news. That's the old man. That's your old spirit. And what God does is God gives to you his spirit. And then what does the spirit do in you? Galatians chapter 5 tells us that the spirit produces things in your life. We call that the fruit of the spirit. And sometimes we look at the list of the fruit of the spirit and we're like, man, I really need to work on this one or that one. No, 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 no. You don't work on them. The Holy Spirit works on them. The Holy Spirit works in you and the product of what the Holy Spirit is doing in you is shown in these fruits. The Spirit of God, as we submit ourselves to God, God changes us. He makes us more like Jesus. He helps us to love this way. He gives to us this love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Have you been around someone like that? Who, who, who is exhibiting those things? You're like, man, I want to be like that. How do you think they got like that? They got close to Jesus. They were sensitive to the spirits. They've submitted themselves to God. They've received from God the spirit. In the manifestation, the outcome of that are these fruits. It's this kind of love that Paul is talking about. Love is the fruit of or the the product of the spirit in our lives as we keep in step with the spirit, as we're filled with the spirit, as we're controlled by the word of God and we walk in the newness of life. And so, yes, as we read 1 Corinthians 13, love. Yes, go out and love. Love as you have been loved. Why? Because it is the evidence, it is the evidence of the work of God and the fruit of the Spirit in you. And what does that do? That brings glory to God. And other people then see God. They don't see you, they see God. That's what your good works are about. That's what your love is about. It's about pointing them to God. What did Jesus come to do? He didn't point people to himself. He pointed people to the Father. And he sends now you and me out to do just the same thing. May it be true of you and me that we may love this way. May God help us to do it by the grace that he supplies. As we come to the table this morning, we get another glimpse of what love looks like, don't we? We see again what sacrifice looks like. We see again what our salvation required. Here we have the bread. In the bread, we see the body of Jesus pierced for our transgressions. In the cup, we see the shed blood of Jesus for the remission of our sins, for the forgiveness of our sins. And so if you know Jesus this morning, if you're walking with Jesus this morning, if you know him as your savior, if you've repented and you've believed on him by faith, then we invite you in just a few moments to receive the bread and the cup with us. But I would just say this this morning, if you have yet to come to Christ this morning, more than observing communion, more than receiving these elements, the invitation for you is to receive Jesus to receive his love, to receive his forgiveness, to receive hope, to receive eternal life. So in a few moments when it's time to come up, if you're not in a place to take communion, we invite you to sit and to pray and to talk to God and to receive from him the forgiveness that your heart desperately needs.
In a few moments, we'll take communion together. But let's take a moment to prepare our hearts for that. There are two prayers on the pamphlet that you received on the way in. I think they'll be on the screen as well to help guide your prayer. After I pray, when the music begins, you're free to come and receive these elements in memory of the work of Christ for you. And as I pray, would the servers please come forward. God, would you prepare our hearts now as we observe the Lord's table, as we take of this bread and of this cup, we remember the Lord's death until he comes. God, um, the Apostle Paul tells us that it is the love of Christ that compelled him to no longer live for himself, but for you. And may your love compel us to love one another. And even now, as we remember the work of Christ, would our love for him grow more and more. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.